You know, there's probably nothing better to be reminded of than the fact that we need God. Whether you're here and you feel very beat down and depressed, maybe, or uh, just beat down with life spiritually, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, you must be reminded that you need God. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling quite good about yourself, you're pretty self-reliant, pretty proud of yourself maybe, uh, it's good to be reminded that you need God, that in yourself you have nothing, absolutely nothing. It's wonderful to sing these songs together as a people here in this local church, and I'm just so grateful to the band for leading us in worship as they put so much prep time throughout the week into practicing and to thinking on the words. And we pray before the service over here in this room, just asking that the Lord would, would tear away any impediments in our minds to being able to worship him in spirit and truth and being able to direct our praise, those who, are, who come up on the stage on Sunday morning to do whatever, or those who are back in the sound booth, to be able to direct our eyes, not to men, but to the living God, to be able to worship him before his eyes, not before the eyes of Men. So the prayer is that all of us today will worship him in that way. Well, today, as Craig prayed, <coughs> as he mentioned, is the Sunday before Easter, which has traditionally been referred to as Palm Sunday. Uh, some of you maybe uh, grew up in a church where this was, uh, this was something that was even enacted, perhaps, in a, in a liturgical way, or maybe this was something that was more of an afterthought as you were growing up. We, have, we all come from different traditions, from low church-type traditions that do not observe any kind of liturgical calendar really at all, and then high church traditions where that is very much a part of the worship of the church. But this is Palm Sunday, uh, the day Christ rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, and the Jewish crowds hailed him as their king. Of course, not as the king uh, as he really was, but they hailed him as the great liberator from Rome. And uh, we will see that shortly after that, they, we, we see as we read the gospel shortly after that, they yelled, crucify him, the same one whom they saw as the great son of David, the great king, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. They yelled shortly thereafter, in fact, just a few days, five days, uh, they yelled, crucify him. But they put down these palm branches as he came in on a donkey, humbly, meekly riding as king of the universe and king of the Jews into Jerusalem. They put down these palm branches under the feet of the donkey. So he came in in that way. But rather than move to a Palm Sunday passage today, I have decided to stick with our series on Genesis. And here's why. The main reason why I have decided to stick with our series on Genesis is because on Good Friday and Easter, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the finished work of Christ in redemption. And I think, I can't think of a better way to prepare for that than to consider the finished work of God in creation, and particularly this idea of Sabbath rest. So consider this. The very beginning of the Bible, we have God finishing his work of creation, which we looked at last week. And then he rests. 
And then we come to Easter, we come to Good Friday, and what we're going to look at on Friday is these words of Jesus, it is finished. So we hear in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, essentially, it is finished. God has made all things, he has created, and now Jesus on Good Friday, we hear him on the cross there saying, it is finished. So yes, I could have gone and looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John's uh, Palm Sunday passage, and we could have done that, but I, I think it's quite fitting to just continue here and to consider how what Christ did on the cross and in being raised from the dead matches the theology that we find throughout all of the Bible and goes back to that very first week where God rested, and it's through Christ, of course, that we have this true Sabbath rest. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 2, 1 to 3. That's where we're going to be today. And as I said, on Friday, we do have a Good Friday service, so please come to that. We will be looking at the words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished in light of what we're looking at here with creation. And then, of course, we will be discussing the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Last week, we started looking at the seventh day. God's work of creation took six days. And then on the seventh day, we are told that God rested. So the title for the sermon last week was simply the seventh day. You really can't get too creative with that. And our approach was to simply last week to simply walk through those verses. So chapter 2, 1 to 3, we just walked through those verses and looked at what happens on the seventh day. It talks about God resting. He completed his work. He rested and he, and he sanctified that day. So we looked at these verbs, these three activities of God as it's described there on the seventh day. We looked at his completing, his ceasing, and his consecrating. But the title for the sermon today is The Seventh Day Applied. And what we're trying, <coughs> excuse me, what we're trying to do today is flesh out what the implications of this passage are for Christians. This may be uh, the question of the Sabbath, the question of the Lord's Day, the question of what do you do on Sunday. Uh, maybe uh, these are questions that you have not really dealt with, or maybe you grew up in a tradition or a particular church where these questions were answered differently than other churches that you have been a part of, or maybe these questions just weren't asked at all. One of the great joys, by the way, of expository preaching, and I discovered this painfully so in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is that you cannot dodge the hard passages. You have to deal with it. See, it's really easy easy if you're a topical preacher, just go where you want. And, and if, you, if you hit, a, if you hit a, a hole or you run up against a wall, you just say, forget that. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to dodge that. That's too hard. That's too difficult. That's too thorny. I, I, I'm not going to work through that. And that would be nice, I suppose. But one of the great things about having to go through verse by verse the scripture is that you have to deal with those hard passages. You have to, you have to be impacted by those passages as a preacher, and then you have to be able to clearly explain those passages to God's people. And God's people have to deal with them in that way. And so what we want to do today is to begin to reach out from the seventh day and ask questions about what the, what the application is for us. How do we think about these notions of Sabbath, rest, Lord's Day, Sunday, and so forth? So trying to maybe begin to answer, and I want to emphasize begin, begin to answer some of these 
very practical questions for us as a church. So just to set the context, <coughs> we have the Old Covenant from the Ten Commandments, a passage in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So what do we learn from this passage? Just on a very basic level, we learn that this applied to Israel in particular. Here we have uh, this notion of the Sabbath, and there was an application of the creation specifically to Israel. God's rest on the seventh day and his sanctifying of the seventh day was the basis for the Sabbath commandment that the Jewish people were to strictly observe a particular day each week, each week in which they were to refrain from particular activities and devote themselves to worship. And this was Saturday. The seventh day is Saturday. And so we read all throughout the Gospels on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, and you have these interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders regarding Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. You have these references in the New Testament to Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath and hearing the word of God read. And that's when Jesus opens up the scroll, reads from Isaiah, says, today in your hearing, this is fulfilled, and sits down, and they're just, whoa, flabbergasted, and they try to run him out of town and stone him and kill him. This is the Sabbath that the Jews recognized, observed on account of what God had commanded in his law. John Calvin calls it a symbol of sanctification to his ancient people. As I discussed last week, the idea of Sabbath was it, it was a holy day for a holy people. And so you had this people in the ancient world who were not only uniquely monotheistic, which means they worshiped one God, which was unique in the ancient world. There are other later expressions of it, like Zoroastrianism, which you have in Babylonia and other places. But this is one particular expression of religion that's really unique in the ancient world, and that is Hebrew monotheism. But it wasn't just the fact that they worshiped one God. It was also these other practices which were meant to communicate the fact that they were a holy people. And so circumcision had a communication of, of their holiness, that they were, they were to be a pure people. They were to be a set-apart people. Their hearts were to be circumcised, cut from the heart, that impurity and sin cut out from them. And they were to be a people who observed a day. Where on a Sabbath day in Israel, whether it was in the wilderness or later as they came into Jerusalem and began to inhabit Palestine, whatever the case, these Jewish people on the Sabbath did not work. They worshiped the Lord. They heard his, his word read. And they participated in various acts of mercy towards one another. But how does all of this apply to us as Christians. That is our topic for today. And let me just say this. This is a controversial topic. 
Uh, it may not be very controversial in some circles, but on the whole, there are a range <coughs> of differences of opinion and differences of interpretation on the question of the Sabbath and on what, how the Christian relates to the Sabbath. And so what I'm going to do today is present to you what I understand to be what the Bible teaches as we go through various passages in light of Genesis 2, 1 to 3. And, and you then have to work through that with God's word and talk through it in gospel community group. But that is what we're going to occupy ourselves with today. So if you will, please go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna read God's word. We're going to be covering a number of texts, but what we'll do now is just read the passage that we explored last week, we went through, and that we're, we, are, we have as our basis for our discussion today. Genesis 2, <coughs> verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, <coughs> and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. That he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You can go ahead and be seated. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to. Uh, to show us from his word what he would have us to think, what he would have us to do. By the way, I encountered a, an idea this week that was, uh, has, has been implicit to me in the past, but it was made very explicitly in a book by John Frame. And the book is A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. It's a pretty massive book. But in the very beginning, he talks about how... Uh, we, are to, we, we oftentimes think about how we are to serve God in our doing. We oftentimes think about how, you know, I, I serve God by, by going and helping this person or by reading this or, or doing this act, this specific act, or coming somewhere, going somewhere. One of the things he points out is that one of the ways we serve God and therefore one of the ways in which we can sin is in our thinking. That, that to think wrongly is to sin that we have intellectual responsibilities before God. And he, he mentions this in his introduction as he's gonna go out and explore the history of philosophy and how people have thought wrongly, have understood wrongly and sinfully and depraved ways, put things together in wrong ways, not based on the fear of God, which is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge, not based on Christ in whom is found all wisdom and knowledge, but based on human precepts, and human wisdom. So let's just ask the Lord this morning, the reason I mention that is let's ask the Lord this morning that we might serve him with our minds as we study his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> our heavenly Father, what a privilege to open up your sacred scriptures, to open up the Bible. We know that this is foolishness to the world. God, and perhaps there are some among us this morning who think this is ridiculous, who think that this is foolishness. To spend our time, even an hour, thinking through an ancient set of books, meditating on them and trying to base our lives on them. How foolish, says the world. 
But God, we know that we are not of the world. As your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not of the world. He called us out of the world. We live in it, but we are not of it. And so, God, we thank you for that because this is only by your grace. And we praise you as we have this morning through our song of assurance. We praise you for your mercy that in the midst of our sinfulness, you have come to us in Jesus and you have redeemed us from the curse of the law. You have redeemed us from enslavement to sin. You have saved us. God, we are so thankful for this. And we just want to praise you today for your gospel. We want to understand its implications for us. We want to understand the implications of Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So, Father, would you be merciful to us even as we err in our thinking, even as I err in the communication of your word, as we err in our listening, God, would you be merciful to us in our sin? Father, we thank you that in Jesus all of our sins are taken away. And Father, we pray this morning that you would be merciful to those among us, perhaps, who are unsaved. Father, we know that we are not saved by our works or our church attendance or our pedigree or any such thing, but only through the blood of your Son, which covers our sin. As we celebrate this week, as we prepare for Easter, as we prepare for Good Friday and think on the rest you give us through Christ, Father, would you be merciful to those among us, perhaps, who are unconverted? Would you save them, God? Would you show them their need of a Savior? Would you show them, as the Catechism says, would you show them that your holy nature and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus their need for a Savior? God, would you be merciful, we ask. Thank you for this time together. Would it be fruitful by your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, (coughs) I want to look at four implications of the seventh day for us as Christians. These are four ways, four facets, there's a lot of things you could say, uh, four kind of uh, specific applications for us as Christians as we think about Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So here we go, a pattern to emulate, number one. Number two, a reality to appreciate. Number three, a call to celebrate. And then finally, a future to anticipate. As we read Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we think about the so what factor. So what for me? What am I to do with this passage? God resting and sanctifying this seventh day. What's the the import for me as a Christian living here in the 21st century? And I think these are at least a, a starting point for beginning to think about the application of this passage to our lives and to our hearts. So first, a pattern to emulate. A couple of months ago, our ladies went on a women's retreat, and I hope that, well, I I know that many of you enjoyed that. It was a blessing. Uh, So grateful for Leanne and the others on her team who are uh, involved in leading our women. It's, It's such a strong ministry here at our church. Just praise God for his grace in that. But our women were away on a women's retreat, and so that left the guys. Not entirely. There were some ladies here on that Sunday morning, but it was our congregation that Sunday morning was largely comprised of the guys. And I think that was quite fitting because we had a sermon 
that, that day, we just happened to come up on God's six days of work, the big picture. And so that was the Sunday when we went into the six days of creation and we sort of did a flyover, uh, chapter one, verses three to 31. And we looked at the whole picture, all those six days and kind of the language that, that, that transcends each day and that, that ties all of the days together. And because we had mostly men in the congregation, it was fitting because we were discussing how God gives us a model of work. Now, this is not in any way to imply that women are not able or or permitted to work outside of the home, or this is in no way to apply that there are not seasons in which women are perhaps even primary breadwinners, or that what women do in the home is not work, because that is certainly not true. Uh, So we we recognize that 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 happens, that that is the case. Women for a season, perhaps, or or, uh, uh, maybe you are a couple and the wife works, the husband works, so I'm in no way uh, delegitimizing that, but it was a congregation primarily comprised of men that day. And the Bible does lay out a pattern for us that men, husbands, are to provide for their wives and their families. That is, that is God's pattern for the family in general. And so we looked at God as a model of work, or God's work as a model of our work. And one of the things that encourages us to do this is that when we come to the end of chapter one in Genesis, we are told that we were made in God's image, which means that as we see God doing all of these things in Genesis one, the way in which he does them, what he does and how he does it, we are to take note because the way God operates, the way God does things should communicate to us how we ought to operate, how we ought to do things. We are those made in his image. Just as God rules all, we are to rule over the creation. We have these characteristics of God and we do the things that God does in the world. And (coughs) one of the things we looked at at that point was that God is a model for our work, both in his attitude towards work and in his approach to work. So we described the fact that God sees work as a good thing, What does it say at the end of the creation week that God worked? It says that various times God did this work. That tells us that God values work. As one commentator said, I quoted then, that God has ennobled work for human beings. That we should have, we should put value in our work. We should see work as a good thing, a positive thing. A thing that contributes to the good of God's Creation. So our attitude towards work should be modeled on that. Also our approach to work. We looked at Genesis 1 and we saw that God directs uh, his work towards a goal. We ought to direct our work towards a goal. He divides his work into rational units and so should we. We should develop steps so that means reach an end. We should distinguish, classify, name, and take dominion over the earth. Those are some of the things that we discussed in that sermon. (coughs) And just as God gives us a pattern for work itself, as we discussed then, so too does God give us a pattern for the relationship between work and rest. In reflecting on the implications of the Sabbath command, Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City who has pulled together the catechism that we use for the kids called the New City Catechism, Uh, But he says, in that catechism, you pull it up on your phone if you have the app. And by the way, if you have children, I recommend that you catechize your children. You teach them the Christian faith systematically from the time they are very small. 
Uh, it's not just the Presbyterians who do this. It's Christians who do this, teaching our children our most holy faith, teaching our children the doctrines of the Bible. And so in the New City Catechism, he says this about work and rest, about the Sabbath, that we are to have a rhythm of work and rest, and we are forbidden to overwork. So at the most basic level, as we come to Genesis 2, 1 to 3, at the most basic level, we're made in God's image. He's a model for us. We should understand <coughs> that the seventh day gives us a pattern to emulate, a six and one pattern for human flourishing. So here's what I think we are to take from this. If we read these verses at the beginning of chapter two of Genesis, we are getting for us a picture of what, it, what a human life will look like at its best. What it will look like when human beings are thinking rightly about work and rest in light of who God is and what God did. That will be a recipe for human flourishing. And I think we should understand that God cares about our bodies. He cares about us in body and soul. You know, there were some early Christian uh, heresies, early Christian false beliefs that just saw the body as irrelevant. The body doesn't matter. It's all about the soul. It's all about the immaterial part of a human being. And so we're just kind of carrying around the body as this baggage. And soon we're going to get rid of this body and we're going to be great. We're going to be fine because the body is the problem. The Bible does not teach that. There is a, a sanctity to the human body. It will be raised from the dead and we will have those bodies forever. And even now, in this life, God cares for the flourishing of us physically and spiritually. And as I'll discuss in a moment, I do not think, so this is kind of my position on how we think about the Sabbath, I do not think it is binding on a Christian to strictly observe a particular day in a particular way. And I, I've chosen those words carefully. I do not think it is binding on a Christian to strictly observe a particular day in a particular way. But Genesis 2, 1 to 3 tells us, I think, that we have a pattern for life. So I don't know about for you, but for me, that day, for me, that kind of Sabbath day, that day of rest, that 6-1 pattern is on a Monday. And so when I first started as a pastor at Four Corners, I talked to some other pastors and I asked them uh, about that. I said, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, so how do, you, how do you go about balancing family and ministry? How do you go about thinking in those terms responsibly in a way that will contribute to the flourishing of the church, but also the flourishing of my home? And one of the things that was communicated to me at that time is, you have to have a Sabbath day and you have to communicate that to your people. Well, I haven't made any kind of announcement or anything like that. I haven't made a city post, but perhaps this is the time to say that for me, that day is Monday. That's not an encouragement for you to not send me a text or an email or phone call on Monday, but it is just me letting you know that that might be a little bit delayed in me getting back to you because on a Monday, for me, I unplug. I unplug, I invest in my family. It's an opportunity for me to stay away from my phone. So one of the things I try to do is take my phone and set it in another room and don't touch it. 
Don't, don't hold it. Don't carry it around. Don't look at it. Don't go to my inbox. Don't respond to text immediately or feel like I have to do that. That is a time for me as a person, as a human being, as a Christian, to rest. And so I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, what part does this pattern of work and rest play in your life? Do you have a day free of a things to do list? Do you have a day where it's not just the typical routine of the day? It's not you consumed with work, whether that be work that you have to do for for your employer or work that you have to do around the house even, and some of that can be leisure, I understand, but do you have a day that is free from the grind of a things to do list in which you can meditate on the Lord? One of the things that Jonathan Edwards says in a book written for children is uh, he says, it's, it's to youth, it's to young people. Some of these were, were older kids, or young teenagers, and one of the things he says to them is, take hold of this time while you are young. Don't think that it is for a later time for you to serve God and walk with him. Take hold of this time when you are young. And here's what he says. He says, because now this is a beautiful, wonderful time for you to explore God and to rest in him and to enjoy leisure with him before the responsibilities of life come falling down on your shoulders. And I I think one, one application to us is this. Perhaps what a day of rest would look like is for you to partake in that experience of being that young person without all of that responsibility, to be able to, within the context of your family, to meditate on the Lord and to consider his wondrous works. Do you have that in your life? Or are you just grinding it out, head down, like an ox. Remember we talked about what it looks like to live like an animal, like a beast, head down, grinding it out, moving through your days, not stopping to look up, to look in. Why do we do this? Why do we often ignore this pattern? Why do I often ignore this pattern? Why do all of us tend to think that this is sort of irrelevant for our flourishing, our happiness, our good as human beings? Well, I think there are a few reasons. One of those (coughs) is idolatry of work. When work becomes God, work becomes all-consuming. So when work is where you find your identity, maybe that's where you find that sense of respect that you have for yourself. That sense of self-worth and dignity. That's where you really wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, and in those days when you're feeling down, you lift yourself up with the value of your work, with the importance of your position or the importance of your contribution to society or whatever it might be. Maybe that's where you bank yourself in your work. Kent Hughes says there is more to life than work. And a Sabbath day, a rest day like this in creation, forces us to consider that. That there's not just your job. Not just what you do for a living. Not just your things to-do list. But there is more to life than that. Another reason I think we ignore this pattern is trust in self rather than God. Well, God can't take care of me, so I gotta grind it out. I gotta do it. I gotta work every day. I gotta make it happen because if I'm gonna succeed, if things are gonna work out for me, I've gotta do it. 
The Bible has a lot to say about God blessing the work of our hands. God blesses the work of the hands of those who put his priorities above our own priorities and who trust in him. Part of the reason that we don't do this is because we trust in our own selves. We're very self-reliant, and if we don't do it, it won't happen. We forget God altogether. In fact, oftentimes when we do this, we act like pagans. We act like we don't have a God at all. We're just unbelievers functionally so often in the way we work. How about this? A lack of wisdom in planning and forethought that could free up a day. You know, it's not easy to make sure that you have a rest day. It's not easy to do that. You actually have to plan. You have to plan for a rest day. You have to have forethought about a rest day. You have to scheme and systematize in order to get to that point. It requires wisdom. Well, sometimes, you know, I'm, forget that, I'm just going just to grind it out. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why we ignore this pattern. And finally, and this is ironic, the idolatry of leisure. What do I mean by that? It doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, how can a person who works all the time idolize leisure? Well, this is very interesting when you think about it. Because part of the reason why we have to work all the time is because we do not fully give ourselves to work when we're working. That when we're working, we're not working 100%. We're not intense and focused and diligent and wise as unto the Lord, working not for men but for God. And so because we're not diligent and focused and intense and unto the Lord when we are working, we're kind of 80% seven days a week rather than 100% six days a week so that we can take rest. So I think part of the problem is not just idolatry of work. I think it also involves idolatry of leisure. So that's the first thing I think we are to take from this is that God has given us, this is the point, God has given us from the very beginning, right after telling us we're made in his image, he's given us a pattern to emulate. And the extent to which we emulate this pattern will be the extent to which we contribute to the flourishing of ourselves and our families and even our work. The second thing that I think we should apply to ourselves is that here we have a reality to appreciate. A reality to appreciate. <clears throat> when we come to the New Testament... We get various forms of fulfillment language associated with the Sabbath. In other words, Christians are understood to be living in a Sabbath. It's fascinating. Christians are understood to be living in a Sabbath. Our very lives are a kind of Sabbath rest. And we see this idea played out in a number of texts in the New Testament. So let me just give you three. Three places where I think we begin to see that for the Christian, life itself is Sabbath. Understood rightly. So Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me. <coughs> All who labor and are heavy laden. <clears throat> and I will give you, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna fight through this thing. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. There's a kind of rest in coming to Christ because in the context, Christ is talking, he's engaging with these religious leaders, right? And for the religious leaders, how is one saved? By keeping laws, by doing and working, saved by works. And the the religion, if you will, of Christ is salvation by grace through faith, not salvation by works. And so to come to Christ is in a real way, in this sense, it is to cease from works. It is to find in Christ our resting place. Come to me. I will not strap you with all of these things that you must do to be saved. I will save you and then empower you to live like me. Hebrews 4.3, which was read earlier, for we who have believed enter that rest. Talking about the rest that gets played out with the Jews as they are going into the promised land, into the land of rest, connected with the Sabbath. Here we have the writer telling us, we, have, we who have believed enter that rest. And then Colossians 2, 16 to 17, says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, that's interesting. You have Christians who are being sort of condemned or judged by others who are doing uh, certain things with regard to food or drink or they are thinking one or another way about a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are, these are Jewish observances, Jew, Jewish ceremonies. And this is what Paul says about all of that. He says, these are a shadow <coughs> of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that tells us that when we come to the New Testament, we are to understand that life in Christ is itself a fulfillment of the Sabbath. Life in Christ is to be in a state of observing a Sabbath rest, if you will. So this Sabbath has become a reality in the life of the Christian. As one commentator, Alan Ross, says, the believer enters into a life of Sabbath rest from works and embarks on a life of holiness in that rest. John Calvin describes it in this way. In the law, a new precept concerning the Sabbath was given. He's talking about to Israel. A new precept concerning the Sabbath was given that was to be peculiar to the Jews for a season because it was a legal ceremony showing a spiritual rest the truth of which was manifested in Christ. So in Christ, we have come to rest. So what is our response to this? Well, the first is praise. Praise God that he has given you rest. If you are a Christian, if you are a born again, regenerate Spirit-indwelt Christian. There is one thing that you have, a lot of things, but there, one thing as we see here that you have that unbelievers do not have, and that is rest. Praise God for that. How much striving, how much unsteadiness, how much tumult, Do we see in the hearts of those who do not know God, yet God has stilled the hearts of his people just as he stood up on that boat and he said, be still to the storm. He has reached into the heart of the Christian and he has said, be still. He's given us a rest. It is, as Augustine said many years ago, our hearts are restless till they find their rest 
in thee? Is your heart restless? Are you lost without Christ? What does Christ give us rest from? From the labor of working for our own salvation? Maybe you're keeping track. It's one of the ways to know perhaps that you're not a Christian. You're keeping track of what you're doing. And you're thinking if it all, all this grace Christ stuff doesn't work out, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, when you get to the judgment throne of God to which all of us will go, you are thinking that if it doesn't work out with this whole Christ grace thing, you're gonna pull out of your back pocket a list of what you've done for God. It's a clear sign that you are undone in your sins and need Christ. If that is how you think. Christ gives us freedom from the labor of working for salvation. He gives us freedom from the labor of being a slave of sin. You know, think about the Israelites under Egyptian slavery. They are laboring every day, every day, hard, making bricks, more bricks, more bricks, being whipped. That is the way sin is for each person who doesn't know Christ. Sin is like an Egyptian slave master who whips you and tears at you, enslaves you, and oppresses you. And Christ gives freedom, rest from all of that. And for the Christian, we consider this. As Kent Hughes says, the more trust, the more rest. So maybe you heard this morning, you're a Christian, you know you're a Christian, but you just really could say, you know, a lot of times I'm not functionally, practically resting in God. I'm just not, I'm just, a, I'm a mess. I am a mess in my life. Man, maybe that's you. What's going on here? The more trust, the more rest. You know what I find fascinating in my own heart? And I think we, we see this in, in our, all of ourselves. We are really quick to talk about trusting God with our finances or our job or our kids or uh, our health. Just gotta trust God. Yeah, trust God. Yeah, trust God. Trust God. Of course, that's true. And we should. But how often do we think about entrusting our souls, our eternal destiny into the hands of God? We're so ready to be focused when it comes to the, I, I guarantee for most of us, when I say trust God, the first thing you think is I gotta trust him with this, this health issue. I gotta trust him with my kids. I gotta trust him with my money. I gotta trust earthly, earthly, earthly. What about trusting him with your soul? Trusting him with your eternity. Entrusting yourself to him every day. Hoping in Christ. Banking on him. That's the rest. That's the trusting, hopeful, gospel-rich rest that the Sabbath calls us to. So this is a pattern to emulate. It is a reality to appreciate. Thirdly, it is a call to celebrate. In Romans 14, the Apostle Paul addresses Christians who disagree with one another and they are judging one another over matters such as what one should eat <coughs> or drink <coughs> or which days one should observe as sacred. Now, this is, this is important. And this, I think, is one of the most challenging passages for Sabbatarians. A Sabbatarian is a person who thinks 
that the, our understanding of the Christian's relationship to the law, particularly the fourth commandment, uh, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy, puts a mandate on Christians to observe a particular day in a particular way. Whether that be a seven-day Adventist in their emphasis on a Saturday, or that be any other Christian who emphasizes what one ought to do, must do, must do on Sunday, and so forth. This, I think, is one of the most challenging verses. And admittedly, this is, they'll, they'll cite this and say this is a challenging verse. I think it's a challenging verse that should uh, really lean our interpretation one way over the other. And this is not the only one. There are others I've just read, Colossians 2 particularly. But here's what it says in Romans 14, 5. One person, listen to this, one person esteems one day as better than another. Doesn't, doesn't say which day, doesn't say the, the context. It just says one person esteems one day as better than another. Now listen to this. While another esteems all days alike. Well, you cannot esteem all days alike if you have a firm, strictly observant understanding of what one must do on a particular day in a particular way, it seems to me. One person esteems all days alike. Now, this would be a great opportunity for Paul to say, that second person, wrong. He doesn't do that. This is what he says. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's a matter of conscience before the Lord. And I think that is because, ultimately, it, it is because we are resting. We are in Christ, as Paul said in Colossians 2. Those were a shadow of the things. That, that does not mean that if a person who understands the Sabbath in this way and keeps it, that, that we should look down upon them. Or if someone understands the Sabbath in, in, in this opposite way, maybe you're hearing me preach this morning, you disagree with what I'm saying, and you say, no, I'm a Sabbatarian, then Paul's counsel to Romans 14 applies to us all. We live unto the Lord. We should not judge one another in this matter. Read Romans 14, the whole chapter. If you're troubled by this and how we ought to treat one another with respect to such things. But it is clear that day keeping in a strict sense was not to be binding on Christians. However, however, it's important, however, we see that in the New Testament, there emerges a day called the Lord's Day. What do we do with that? The Lord's Day, it is the first day of the week the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. So let me read you some text just to fill out this whole Lord's Day thing. I'll go quickly. John 20, verse one. <coughs> now on the first day of the week, <clears throat> Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Later in the day, John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. The first day, the first Easter, the first Lord's Day was a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with his apostles in that room. Acts 27, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break, break bread. That tells us that the Christians met on the first day of the week, not on the seventh day of the week. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. This is Luke writing, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, on the first day of every week, 
Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's talking about giving. When are they to do that? On the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because that's when they meet, break bread, study the word of God. That's when they meet together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's, when they've been, that's what they've been doing since the beginning. That's the origin of this notion of the Lord's Day. Revelation 1.10, John says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So this is the connection in the early church between Sunday, the first day of the week, and the Lord's day. These two things are one and the same. And this practice gets mentioned very early in the history of Christianity. In the early second century, the early 100s, we have Ignatius of Antioch. He's an early martyr. Fed to lions. He's it's amazing. He's amazing. You should look at him. He, he's on his way to Rome to be fed to lions. He knows he's going to be fed to lions. He's meditating on that with joy. Read these letters that he writes to these churches. And he's writing to all these churches. And he, he's not sitting there stressed out, you know, biting his nails or anything like that. He's, he's worried about the health of these churches in Asia Minor as he's on his way to be fed to lions. Just a little side note, it's incredible, but this is what he says in one of those letters. Incidentally, Christians no longer observe the Sabbath, but direct their lives to the Lord's day on which our life is refreshed by him and his death. So what does all this mean for us? Where Jews would gather in the synagogue on the Sabbath to share together in the word, we as Christians gather on the Lord's day to share together in the word. Just as Israel gathered to celebrate and contemplate God's creation and his deliverance from Egyptian slavery, we gather to celebrate God's new creation and redemption through the death and resurrection of his son. Hopefully you see how considering this really prepares us for an understanding of Easter. As we come up to Good Friday, as we come up to Easter, just as God had done, they looked back over God's work and delighted in it, and that's exactly what we do. Remember, the first seventh day, the first Sabbath, what did God do? He looked back over his work, he said it's very good, and he rested. He ceased, he delighted in it. It's one of the things we talked about last week, is this was a, this was a celebrative kind of rest. He's looking back over his creation, and he's delighting in it. So what did Israel do on the seventh day? They stopped. And they looked back over what God had done in making the world and in making them as a people. What do we do when we come together on the Lord's day? We look back and we consider the recreation of all things through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and the redemption from sin that we have in him. We do what they did. In this way. So when we put the six in one pattern of creation together with the Lord's Day, I'm trying to sort of build something here, so just follow me. When we put the six plus one pattern of creation, remember a pattern to emulate, together with this idea of the Lord's Day, it is natural, as Christians have done for centuries, it is natural to understand Sunday as a day to spend time both resting and worshiping God. Not a mandated day. 
not an obligatory day in which there are certain things you cannot do and certain things you must do and so forth, not to be understood in a strict sense as a Christian Sabbath. <coughs> just, it's just move days, but the same thing that applied to Israel applies to us. Not to be understood in those terms, but naturally to be understood as both a day, to look back over all of God's works and a day to rest according to the divine pattern. But for some, Sunday does not fit the pattern. Sunday does not really fit the pattern for me personally. Sunday may not really fit the pattern for you personally. And so you have to find a day of rest for yourself elsewhere. And so I think that's another reason why this is not in a strict understanding of, we're not to have a strict understanding of Sabbath observance in the way that some do. Here's the main thing we need to see at this point. The seventh day of Genesis 2, 1 to 3, for the Christian serves as a call to worship, a call to gather with God's people on the Lord's day to celebrate his works. Here, here's something I wanna to submit to you. You come to church when you'd like to. Let's say that's you. I'm not, I'm not, I have nobody in mind, trust me. Nobody in mind. In fact, I'm going to look down. Uh, <coughs> but let's say that you come to church whenever you would like. Periodically. Regularly, maybe. But regularly in your definition. Regularly according to your own wisdom and insight. And according to your own standards of when you should come and when you shouldn't. And it's quite fine. Here's what I want to submit to you. Here with the seventh day, we have a call to worship regularly. We have a call to worship when we are able every week. And here's what I want to say to you. When we neglect this, we rob ourselves of a regular diet of celebration. Did you hear that? We rob ourselves of a regular diet of celebration. And where celebration in the resurrected Christ is lacking from your life, you will celebrate something else. You will find something else to delight in. You will find something else to hope in. You will find something else to cling to and find identity in. But where the people of God, gathered collectively together, week in and week out, are singing the praises of a crucified, resurrected, enthroned Christ, there is much stirring of the soul. There is much confessing of sin. There is much applying of God's grace. There is much adoration of him for what he's done in Christ. When we take it lightly, the devil smiles. It's not a law. No one's, no one's ticking off how many Sundays you come to church. But the devil is because he likes to keep you away from what happens here weekly. Week in and week out. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but we are to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 25 says, so let's go to that, the final point, a future to anticipate. As we consider the final day approaching, we always have that in view as we think about the Sabbath. So finally, a future to anticipate. We've seen that the seventh day of rest described in Genesis 2 gives us a pattern to emulate, a reality to appreciate, a call to celebrate. But now I want you to see that it gives us this future 
to anticipate. Here's what Hebrews 4.10 says. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'll say that again. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What was the situation on the Sabbath? What was the situation on that first seventh day? What, what, What was it like there in Eden? Or what was it like there with Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were living in God's rest. As the writer of Hebrews in chapter four talks about people being in God's rest, right? In God's rest. God stopped from what he had made and he was resting and Adam and Eve, God is so gracious, he just took Adam and Eve right up in that rest. They were invited to enjoy and appropriate God's rest. They were living in perfect relationship and enjoyment. Perfect relationship and enjoyment between man and God. Perfect relationship and enjoyment between the two of them, husband and wife. Perfect relationship and enjoyment between them and the creeping things, even spiders, and the beasts. Some of you just shook your head when I said spiders. Yes, even spiders. And, and, And the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish in the sea. There was a perfect, perfect harmony vertically and horizontally, and even between man and the created order, a perfect rest and enjoyment. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that this will be the future for every Christian. You can bank on it. Soon, your eyes will shut, and you'll be done. Soon, my eyes will shut, and I'll be done. But in Christ, we live forever. Christ will come back And he will raise us from the dead as he promised. He said, this is the will of my father, that not a single one whom he has given me will be cast away, will be lost. He says this, this this is the will of my father, that I should raise them up on the last day. We will live in perfect rest with God. It will happen. This is our great hope. This is our great comfort. Just as we have entered that rest by believing in Jesus, one day we will experience the fullness of it in perfection. What joy and beauty awaits the people of God. But there's a warning. There's a warning. In fact, the tone of Hebrews 4, where it talks about, and I'll finish here this morning, the tone of Hebrews 4, where it talks about the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God, that we look forward to, that brings us great joy and great hope. It's a warning passage. It's a warning passage. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What? in the world is going on there. It's interesting to me that as we read through this passage, it starts in verse one of chapter four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still remains, still stands, let us fear, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed, boom, failed to reach it. Rest awaits the people of God. He says, fear lest you think you're headed towards rest and you fall in your sins and do not end up there in that paradise of God forever. Let me tell you what this is. This is a warning to you, faithless 
participant. And here's what I mean. Let's say you come, you participate, but you have no faith in Christ. He is not your hope. He's not your anchor. He's not the one upon whom you rest in your soul. You have not entrusted your soul into his hands. You are living your life the way you want to, and you've got some religion mixed into it. You're a participant in the things of God. Maybe you're a regular church attender, but you don't know Christ. You will fall in your disobedience of unbelief, and you will not enter God's Sabbath rest. It's a warning. So for the Christian, we have great comfort, but to the faithless participant, great warning. I also want to conclude with one other idea. It is a warning to the slothful Christian who misunderstands divine rest. Here's what I mean. Isn't it interesting that when the writer of Hebrews tells us we're resting, in the context of resting, he says to us, strive to enter into that rest. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, does Jesus say, I'll take a yoke off of you? No, he says, I'll give you my yoke. What this tells us is this, that to rest in the strict sense, to rest in Christ in the strict sense is to be vibrantly serving the Lord. To rest in Christ is to be his slave and to serve him with all your might, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your hours and your days. This is not a slothful rest. The divine rest is an active rest, but it is one that hopes in Christ, not my works, and it is one that anticipates that great rest that will come when all of our works are done and we walk in paradise with him. So once again this morning, behold our God who gives us rest now, rest indeed, and who one day will give us perfect rest in his presence forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your rest, God. Thank you that although we are a people often moved about by every wave of circumstance, every wind of trial, that you still give us your rest. Father, would you just remind your people this morning of this truth that you have rested us in paradise even already as we know Christ. And one day you will rest us in glory. God, help us to trust this, not to just trust you with the mundane and our, our earthly stuff, but God, to trust you with our souls, that in the hour of death we might die well in faith and joy, singing your praises and trusting in the blood of your Son, God, help us. Help us live real, authentic Christian lives. Protect us from the evil one who desires that we not celebrate your great work in Jesus. Help us to fight him in spiritual warfare with your power, with the sword of your spirit, with the shield of faith in you that you supply. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.